Welcome everyone to Spirited Discussions. I am your host, Lachlan Watt, a passionate alcoholic and alcohol educator with years of experience in both the spirits and bar industries. Throughout this series, we are going to explore the history and production of some of our favorite vibations, and in each episode, I'll be joined by an incredibly experienced guest. Together, we will delve into a topic with all of the information that you need to understand why you enjoy what you're drinking, as well as some fun tidbits to share with your friends. I'm so looking forward to taking you on this journey to discover the wonderful world of alcohol. Hello and welcome back everyone to Spirit to Discussions. Today I am joined by my good friend, Bonnie Spain. And hello. Today, well, hello. Sorry, I jumped Sorry. in there That's very okay, quickly. yeah. <laughs> so excited. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited as well because we're talking about, well, one of our favourite topics, which is fortified wine. Yeah, definitely uh, one of my favourite topics. I mean, you work in it for a reason. That, that also helps. Yeah. <laughs> I want to quickly acknowledge the fact that I have a very raspy voice today. I'm on the tail end of a very awful cold. There's That's... nothing I can do about it. Ah, <laughs> oh, look, it's just, you know, sounds a little bit sexier than normal. So, the you know, listeners can... Oh, yeah. <laughs> enjoy. Yeah, I think so. Um, <laughs> can you just give us a little bit of a history on your time in the industry? Oh, it's a bit of a, um, it's a bit of a, I guess I call it a jagged one um, to say the least. So I started, started as a dishy as everyone does in yeah. the industry um, and then got my first job at a restaurant when I was 18 and I was at university but look, I liked university, but I kind of sucked at it. And Me I, too. yeah. <laughs> um, so I sort of spent two years at uni and really found solace in my hospitality job and really enjoyed it and cooked a lot at home and stuff like that. So I actually ended up going through a chef's apprenticeship. Right. Um, yeah. So I went to TAFE, studied um, cookery and patisserie, and then found that wasn't for me because I was working front of house all yeah. that time while I was studying that. Over time, found myself in wine specifically. It was a happy accident um, and I'm very glad I'm here. But it was a, yeah, a bit of a, a weird road of kind of testing everything in hospitality. I've worked in bars. I've been a bartender. Um, I've been a waitress. I've been worked in kitchens. I've been a barista. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, in the last sort of, I guess, four, yeah, four years I've been in sort of more wine, uh, wine and front of house training focused. So right. yeah, yeah. So and your your main job now is to train people on so that's, fortified wine. That's part of my job. So I work with a company called the Spanish Acquisition. So that yeah. was started by uh, my boss. Uh, sorry, my boss Scott Wesley, um, twenty one years ago, yeah. and he found a gap in the Australian market that was Spanish wine. So he went there discovered that what was here just wasn't good enough. It wasn't really representing Spain and historical Spain as in, as kind of as the in the best way it could. Yeah. So he started the company and I joined the company two and a half years ago um, and I actually came on as an admin person. I was just thinking this would be a great way to sort of expand my knowledge. I don't know much about Spanish wine. Scott and I clicked when we met um, and then – Two months of working part-time, he offered me a full-time job. Yeah, fair And so now I do, being a small business, we kind of all do a little bit of everything, but my main focus is sort of SEO and marketing. 
And then I also go on the road. Um, I train new venues um, and those more green staff as well. Um, So being, you know, a a very interesting industry at the moment where we have so many seasoned staff members and so many green staff members, there's kind of nothing really in the middle at the moment. Um, All those people either went into repping or (laughs) distribution like I did or they've just done something else entirely. I think a lot of people don't realise that hospitality, the industry itself has kind of changed a lot. The landscape's changed. Hugely, yeah. Because, yeah, throughout COVID a lot of the people who were highly trained and really good at what they were doing transitioned their role because they had no work to be doing behind the bar anymore. Yeah. And so we've had this huge, um, I guess, young team coming through the industry who are all incredibly keen, incredibly passionate, passionate, but not being trained by um, people who've been in the, in the industry for 10 something years, like you and I were. Yeah. And it's, um, we, we saw like the hospitality industry has always been like this, but we're now in the age of hospitality where you have to know everything. Yeah. There's no, there's nowhere to hide anymore. Um, it's because media has, and media, like things like these podcasts and, <laughs> and YouTube channels and all of these things that are out there and also the internet has allowed the consumer, which, you know, we all are at the end of the day, to be more educated on what they're drinking and they're more – also all, everyone – has had all this time during this whole pandemic mm. to become more educated because they had all this time sitting at home just drinking. I reckon let's get started onto the episode proper. Oh, with fuck, yeah. The we 60 do that. second history <laughs> that we do with every episode. Now, I'm going to get you to record me. Well, no, sorry, time me, I should say. I can record you as well. Is this being recorded? I think so. I hope so. Yeah, nice. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get started on that. Time me. Please give me a hard time if I'm incorrect. Wine is a very difficult history to do. Are we doing the history of wine or the fortification of wine? Because <sighs> we'll you can, you can get specific. I can, I can give you a bit of leeway. You don't have to go into the history of too much of the history of wine to go into fortified wine. You can go Oh, actually, no, I'm not giving you I'm not giving no. you clues. I don't know. You gotta do actually, yeah, you know, do this by yourself. Yeah. Uh thank it's you. It's my little teacher coming out. I of mean, me. it's also <laughs> it's such a ubiquitous kind of topic, right? It it's pro- what wine's produced in pretty much every country around the world. Am I meant to be timing now? No, not yet. <laughs> not yet. But yes, <laughs> let's let's get started. All let's right, go let's, into it. Let's do this before time gets away from us. All yeah. Right, the countdown. Three. Two, one, and go. All right. So wine has been produced for thousands of years with the earliest evidence dating back to Georgia in Iran in the Middle East. And then it kind of spreads out throughout the Middle East and Europe with, you know, the the Greeks and the Romans producing and perfecting those styles of wines and that kind of spreading out through Spain. Um, It also has these really incredible religious and cultural ties with uh, the, Dion- the cult of Dionysus in Greece and all of these other things going on. Right, it's also way, represented to the blood of Christ and a life source of blood more generally. And then we start to see fortified wine developing 
around the Mediterranean, so all different parts of the Mediterranean countries uh, producing this fortified wine where they're adding a, a spirit to preserve this product so it can be shipped more easily, Fine. especially the English Ooh. promoting Ding. this and really... Oh, right, oh we're okay. done. All right. <laughs> it was so good though. 13th century, the Mediterranean started to develop these uh, fortified wines. The English really promoted them because they really loved this style of wine in England. I mean, when, let's not get into colonisation of the English. Oh, but. no, I firmly say fortified wine is... Because of colonization. I, I know it's not, but you see that yeah. look when when I'm just gonna call it colonization, let's not fuck yeah, around no. too much. Um as soon as colonization started, because the English were kind of hell bent on having viable wines for them to drink and sort of take with them wherever they went. Yeah. Um they were discovering these wines were cooking on the boat. Yeah. Um Majorizing, um, which we'll get into later, <laughs> <laughs> and they they discovered that it essentially the the longer the time that they were left in barrel, if they fortified it, it was kind of tasty and it kind of worked for them. Well, I, as everyone well knows, I come from a spirits background where I worked in I work in whiskey. Mm. My understanding of fortified wine purely comes from the casts that are used to mature whiskey and the history of using these fortified casts in whiskey was purely because sherry casks, well, casks full of sherry were imported through Scotland for England uh, in the 1500s, so 16th century. Yeah. Well, the bar- yeah, the barrel trade is a massive part of the fortified wine history. Exactly. Um, even when you look on... Um, uh, the consecular regulador of um, the sherry region looks at a massive part of um, sherry barrels being a huge part of the history. It brought money into yeah. um, into the region. Uh, it was a way to use spent barrels, um, things like that. And also it was just a – and sometimes, you know, if you use those casks right, you get delicious sherry cask, you know. And I'm glad to actually on – a, on a side note – um, I'm so glad to see that we're in a lot of whiskey now. They're actually specifying the barrels. Yeah. Well, we're, we can go into that a little bit later. Yeah, because this is, again, my inter- interaction with these wines and what actually inspired me to start looking into these var- these varieties specifically. Um, but let's start off with what was your very first interaction with wine? My first interaction with wine? Um, look, I probably... Drank it as a 16-year-old. Um, I didn't really drink a lot of wine until I was 18 and I was really exposed to it. Um, I worked for my first restaurant job, or my proper, I'll call it a proper restaurant job, Yeah. Um, was down in Queenscliff um, in Geelong. Well, you can't call it Geelong, but it's down near Geelong just to um, give you a bit of geography. Which is in Victoria in Australia. But I had a manager there who very much opened my eyes Um, and, um, I credit Duncan for a lot of giving me that sort of push into really enjoying the industry. Um, he was great to work with and he very much saw very early on that I had a lot of misconceptions of wine because of the, this like kind of the trends at the time. 
Um, yeah. Sauvignon Blanc was done fucking dirty at that time. Um, <laughs> and honestly, kind of rightfully so looking back yeah. um, because we we got tired of Chardonnay apparently, um, which is changing again currently. It is changing again currently. Um, and then it was, you know, Savvy, like kind of Savvy B was the grape, um, which don't mock me. I'm shortening this. <laughs> no, I love it. Savvy B. I call it Savvy B all the time. Yeah. Um, honestly, if you're going to shorten anything, Savvy B, great way of shortening things. Yeah. Um, but we kind of we kind of did it dirty and overdid it and then a lot of people were like, uh, blah, Sauvignon Blanc. And yeah. he kind of saw that in me straight away and had a few little tricks, introduced me to Fume Blanc without me realising Um and literally, like, I went home with a bottle of Fumé Blanc, thought it was a different variety, and came back and I was like, oh, man, Fumé Blanc, that was delicious. Like, what's what's the difference? Like, is it related to Sauvignon Blanc? He was like, it is Sauvignon Blanc, bitch. Take that. <laughs> and immediately, like, um, it just kind of it took me out of my place a little bit yeah. um, and just made me kind of dive in, love these wines a little bit more. And then from there I kind of started exploring when going into fine dining I worked with some amazing restaurant managers and Soms who were just like introducing me to really wacky and lovely things because 2014, 2015, we saw the start of kind of the natty like popularity, um, especially in Victoria and in Australia. Yeah. So they were kind of introduced me to these like weird and funky styles, which I was really enjoying. And then coming back and doing wine again, I was being introduced to them these more like French classical wines, and I was like, "Oh man, it's just all delicious, isn't it?" Yeah, that was wine a very was long way tasty. to say <laughs> my first introduction of wine. Um, but essentially, yeah, I probably didn't properly enjoy it until I was twenty. Yeah, um, and I'm twenty nine now, so. Yeah, well, I mean, that's covered my next question, which is, what is it about wine that excited you? Which was just, it's tasty. Yeah, it's tasty. It's just damn tasty. I, I mean, there's some like I. I I don't really believe there's actually too much shit wine out there, yeah. um, which is pr- it, it, probably controversial to say. I, I don't know, but every wine has its place. It does. Um, you know, and cheap wine is accessible to people who don't have a budget and enjoy drinking it. Yeah. And expensive wine is, you know, it, it has a market to people who can afford that wine or want to splash on the luxury. There's no wrong place with no. any sort of wines. Um, and it all comes down to your personal preference, your taste, the money you want to spend. Like wine's not cheap and it's not getting cheaper. There's no wrong way of drinking wine specifically. Yeah. Um, if you want to put ice in your wine, you fucking go. Again, like, as long as it tastes good to you, yeah. that's all that matters. Exactly. And that can apply to anything. Yeah. Put, Food, put, booze. Like, I mean, you and I have talked about this before because uh, we're on the topic of fortified wines today. Mm. But we've talked about an espresso martini with oh. uh, with PX sherry in it. Before. Yeah, it's the only way to have it. I mean, there's multiple ways to have it, but uh, I if if I see an espresso martini and I know it's made with PX, immediately. Yeah. Like, and everyone's got their own like. The people rag on espresso martinis, um, and I got bartenders <laughs> rag on espresso martinis. No, everybody. <laughs> All right, let's talk about fortified wine, because so we've been drinking this Pinot de Chirons here. Yeah, which is so tasty. It is so tasty. I've just been like sipping it without even thinking. Yeah, it's such an incredible style of wine. But we'll 
get into Mistels in a second. Let's yeah. start with the more common styles of wine. Yeah. And I'll get you to run me through them because you know more than I do at least. Let's start with Sherry. That is so uh, for warning, um, one, Sherry is a massive part of what we do at the company I work at. Yeah. Um, also, I just really like Sherry. Um, so I know a lot about it. Um, so you're probably about to get a lot of info dump. So I might have to hassle you to Maybe. You know, get you to move along a bit. Yeah, quicker. which is normally, it's normally the opposite <laughs> way around. Yeah. Normally it's like, oh, look, you just wrap it up. Yeah. No, it's going to be All right. So Sherry, what sherry. is Sherry? So Sherry can be very overly simplified. Uh, it can be very overly um, explained as um styles of wine that come from Andalusia in Spain. Yeah. Um, so the word sherry itself is the anglicized word for Jerez, yeah. which is from Marca de Jerez. Um, and Marca de Jerez is encompassing a whole region of um, winemaking, pagos and parcellas or vineyards yeah. and things and like that. southwestern Spain, right? Yes, southwestern yeah. Spain. So um, – we're moving away from the Mediterranean uh, yep. and more towards the Atlantic, um, but very, very coastal, um, chalky, sandy soils, um, and it's a really, it's a really interesting region. Um, and I believe it's got an onological history dating back to three thousand years ago. Like there's yeah. there's overlap with ancient Rome well, with yeah. these wines. Again, going back to that history, though, uh, a lot of. Grapes were then spread out throughout the Mediterranean mm. around, what, the 13th century? Yeah, I believe that's when um, uh, uh, most, like when you when you date to the history of a lot of the classical grapes that come from, uh, sorry, don't they don't come from, but they've been planted in um, Portugal and Spain, it's between the 13th and 15th century. Yeah. Yeah. But... Even so, look, wine was getting around that Mediterranean area uh, going back to, uh, what, 6,000 BCE? Something like that, yeah. Um, um, which is so long ago that we can't genuinely comprehend it. Yeah, that's a, that's ancient Egypt. Yeah, yeah. Um, and things like that, which it, it's, yeah, it's just wild to think of something that we consume now is so deeply historical. But um, I think... That's a big reason why I enjoy sherry so much is because it is so deeply historical. Yeah. So they started uh, making the different forms of sherry in, yeah, around the 13th century. When it was being exported, it was being fortified um, for preservation more than anything. And that's um, around the 16th century as yeah, well. About yeah, about that. Um, and then we start to see we've always had the differentiation of styles of sherry. So um, there is five distinct styles of fortified wine in sherry. Yeah. Um, and I'll get into get into that in a little bit. Um, but they, they there's always been kind of that classification, but it was more honed in. Yeah. And the the methods of doing it were kind of more honed in around the around the maybe the sixteenth, seventeenth century. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they weren't always fortified as well. Um, so if they were made to drink domestically, yeah. um, I don't believe they were fortified. It was only for export. So we've talked about those five s current styles of yeah. sherry. So what are those? So let's start at the the drier end. So we've got the um, – so I won't say 
I won't say drier end um, purely because we've got four styles that are distinctly dry um, and it's it, it comes down to uh, two key things. Um, yeah. So sherry is defined by two key things and that is oxidative and biological <laughs> aging. Um, so um, I'll start off with pheno and manzanilla. Um, so pheno and manzanilla are technically the same thing, yeah. um, but they come from different areas in Market Jerez. So uh, manzanilla is a pheno sherry that's made in San Luca de Barrameda. Um, manzanilla translates to chamomile. Yeah. So um, it is a very coastal town. The most northern of these towns um, in in the area. So uh, I'm excluding using Sherry Triangle yeah. um, because that is uh, a term that we're um, the the DO itself is very much trying to force itself away from. But we we don't use it because it oversimplifies uh, an incredibly diverse region. Exactly. Yeah. So there at the moment there's actually four distinct towns that are making. Um, Sherry, um, but that's just a bit of a backbone of I will just refer to them as towns rather than towns within the Sherry Triangle. Um, so San Luca is incredibly coastal um, and it has this distinct style that they went, we're going to call it Manzanilla. Yeah. That's what we're going to do. Um, and then Fino is made in Jerez, Puerto de Santa Maria, and we've also got uh, Chiclana as another yeah. region. So Chiclana is actually probably one of my favourite regions for Fino. Um, and that's going more south. Yeah. It's getting a little bit colder. So Fino um, has to be aged what's called underfloor. Um, it's called Velo de Floor, which means Vale of Flowers. Yeah. The reason it's called Vale of Flowers is because of the way it um, develops on the top of the wine. Uh, it creates these kind of bunches that look like flowers. We should talk about what floor is because floor is effectively a yeast strain that's top fermenting. Yeah. And it creates an oxygen barrier on the top of the wine, right? Essentially, yeah. So floor is yeast bacteria or yeast slash bacteria. Um, and what it does is it can do it can do many things. Um, so floor itself um, is an incredibly hardy yeast strain that survives longer than a lot of wine yeasts. The reason it develops is uh, because of oxygen. Mm-hmm. It was thought to be... Floor was thought to be the mystery of the bodega um, and the reason that it was distinctly like why sherry in Australia didn't taste like sherry in Spain. It's also because it, it is technically native to that part of Spain. It yeah. is such a unique thing that you to the point that people even haven't even tried to recreate it elsewhere in the world. Mostly because you, you, you can use the same strain um, but it's It the, just won't take that way. No, it's like... Um, it, we, we can get into terroir if you want. Mm. Um, so terroir is the concept that um, something is of a place. It mm-hmm. can only really be itself when it is of its place of origin. Um, so that's why in wine we are, you know, really quite passionate about looking looking at wines as regions and specifically, you know. Soils. Soils, and air. People. And yeah, air. there's so there's so many things that go into wine, and I, I won't try and overcomplicate it too much. Because um, we're already doing that anyway. We're already doing that anyway. <laughs> um, so, so the wine, yeah, wine comes down to a multiple multitude of things. There's uh, there is wind, soil, grape variety, um, water, 
things like that. So humidity, good summer, bad summer, oh, good winter, bad yeah. winter. Um, yeah. yeah, frost just mm. fucked up Barolo this uh, this season. Uh, sorry, not frost. Uh, hail, hail just uh, messed up a bunch of vineyards. Um, different kind of ice. Different kind of ice. Yeah. Um, and it's the the everything influences these things. So terroir also tr- like also gravitates into yeast strains. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are specific yeast strains that exist just in those areas um, and they thrive in those areas as well. So, and um, floor is that Floor is one yeah. of them. Um, so it creates kind of this, um, this veil or blanket over the wines and then it spends, so you get minimum of two years um, and it's, it's kind of main role is to actually stop the wine from spoiling yeah. um, and then it also eats up uh, what's called glycerol in the wine. So glycerol yeah. makes wine unctuous or oily. Um, we know Chardonnay and Viognier as being oily grape varieties or thick yeah. is another word for uh, it. Buttery is one I would use for yeah. both those uh, So that's vari- glycerol. Varieties. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's glycerol. Um, so Floor loves gr- glycerol and, and kind of eats it up. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Fino and Manzanilla, to break it down very um, uh, very simply, is wine that is biologically aged under Floor for a minimum of two years in barrel. Mm-hmm. Um, so their barrels are called bottas uh, and they run through um, a system as well, um, which I think we might get into a bit later. And those bottas, which... Uh, they're also called butts. Butts, <laughs> which is what I was going uh, to say. They're the anglicised butt. Um, and that's the typical size for a sherry yeah. cask, right, which is what, 500 litres? I, I roughly. believe it's 300. I believe it's actually quite small. Maybe it is 500. No, I think it is 500. Ooh. Yeah. I, I don't know much about the cask sizes. I'm going to be actually very, very honest and go, that's not what I care about. Yeah. yeah. I have to know it. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, getting into as well, there has been DO changes um, yeah. that specify that Fino and Manzanilla does not have to be fortified, but it must be at a minimum of 15%. Right. Okay. Yeah. So if it's not fortified, it has to be fermented to yeah. a high ABV. Basically, yeah. So what you do is you sun dry um, the grapes for a time and then what that does is condense the sugars yeah. and you can ferment it to I believe it's around 14% and then floor influence and natural loss of water then yeah. brings it up to 15%. Right. Um, there's not many producers making those kinds of wines and they are a little bit expensive um, but there is also <laughs> more work going into them. So, Absolutely. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to the next step up, which yeah. is so Amontillado. I'm, yeah, so I'm going to stick with biological aging with the influence of oxidative aging. Yeah. So Amontillado is essentially uh, Fino or Manzanilla, uh, we'll just call it Fino for now, um, that gets oxidatively aged in barrel after the floor drops. Yeah. So and what, so the floor drops, basically there's no more basically nutrient for the the yeast to thrive on and so it drops out. Yeah, so it drops out, which it can do at any point during the phenomanzania process um, before it goes into the Amontillado process. But what they do is they then fortify it 
pop it into barrel and then pop it through what's called a Solaris system. Mm -hmm. So the Solaris system, uh, think of it as a pyramid where the youngest wine is at the top and the oldest wine is at the bottom. So every time you pull from the oldest stockpile, you need to fill it up. So you go to the next layer. So think of it as you always fill from the one above and then if that one needs filling, you go from the one above again. So uh, essentially it's a a trickle-down system of aged wine is the easiest way of describing it. I I saw a... um a graphic, an infographic of it recently of the Solera system, which is basically well, I think thirty percent no more is taken out of yeah uh, I the bottom so. layer, and then uh, which we uh, I think it's called what a criadera yeah criadera uh, which means um, nursery yeah yeah awesome. so the bottom criadera is where you take your thirty percent out of and you bottle that wine yeah but then you fill it up with thirty percent from the next layer and. Basically, you trickle so trickle it down from the very youngest wine, and so it kind of creates a sense of consistency, kind of homogenizes it a little yeah, bit, but basically. it just creates something um, a bit more balanced, I, I guess, as well. Yeah, especially if you're um, creating a product that is, it needs to be the same no matter what bottling. Yeah. So. That's where that's where the Solera system comes in and you can pull from specific Soleras for bottling and the Solera that might be in the same level, um, the one next to it might not be ready yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you can pull constantly yeah. from this Solera system. Um, so Amontillado um, is usually aged, you, you can speed up the process yeah. with um, any of these oxidatively aged wines. Um, I believe... 15 years is usually like that's a good that's a good time to be in a Montiato. Um, but they Montiatos can live kind of forever. Yeah. Um, you can also have um, touching on that, you can have vintage specific uh, versions of these. And also single cask as well. And single cask. Um, yeah. So you can have, uh, yeah, literally a single cask of wine that is stayed in this barrel and then it's um, It never and then went it's through the Solera system. It yeah. was just. Matured in this cask for yeah. 15 to 30 years. Yeah. And it was just perfect at that point in time. Essentially, they just keep checking it. Yeah. Um, there's some great producers doing those styles of wine. Uh, Quejuela, uh, Paula Medina, uh, Louis Perez, um, yeah. things like that. I mean, these are all producers that we work with. But um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Navarro, uh, Iquipo Navarros as yeah. well. Um, uh, yeah. My it- first love in sherry. Don't tell my boss that. Yeah. Um, I, I do love, yeah, Equipo Novathos. Yeah. yeah. Their <laughs> wines are just incredible. He's a madman as well. Yeah. Crazy. Just Absolutely crazy. Crazy kind of, You kind of have to be though. Yeah. Yeah. A lot um, of these these uh, sherry producers are just. Fucking nuts. But geniuses. Like old Spanish men that are just insane and they just make incredible wine. Yeah. And then there's the young Spanish men who are telling those old Spanish men, uh, get out. You have to be crazy to do that. So it's just this endless cycle of crazy. I love it. Yeah. All right. Um, We also talked about the maturation of Amontillado being at minimum 15 years old. So that leads us to our next style. So Oloroso Oloroso is um, in its own chain. Um, So Oloroso um, only goes through oxidative aging. So it never goes through biological aging. Yeah. Um, and that's where your distinctive difference between a Montiato and Oloroso is. So as I said before, floor eats glycerol, yep. which creates um, 
you know, kind of thick, more unctuous wines. Palomino is a super glyceric grape. Um, and also floor creates the flavor of aldehyde. Yeah. Um, and that's super important in the production of those wines. If you don't have floor influence, you don't have aldehyde and you have high glycerol. Just before that, what does aldehyde taste like? Oh, it tastes different to everybody. Um, I can never distinctly pick up kind of what it is. Um, to me, it's sort of, it's a, it's a little bit methylated spiritsy yeah, for right. me. So it's more kind of ethanol-y, kind of spiritsy, kind yeah, of. Yeah, everyone tastes it a little bit differently. Yeah. Um, but aldehyde uh, can sometimes contribute to um, like a lot more of those um, like I guess like volatile citrusy, yeah. flavor, like volatile, like like uh, rind or pith uh, yeah. or uh, things like lemon that. Lemon pith, grapefru- pink grapefruit yeah. is a, yeah. Um, yeah, grapefruit pith is a huge one that a lot of people pick up. Yeah. I, I usually pick up a lot of mandarin, like when you like smell the inside of a mandarin peel yeah. or like you accidentally get the little uh, the little string on mandarin when you eat it and that's got a flavour. For me, sometimes that's that like real like. Ugh. I'm a crazy idiot because the way I was raised was you when you ate a mandarin, you peeled the mandarin and you ate it, the peel as you went and then you ate the mandarin after that. That was the way my dad taught me how to eat a mandarin. Your dad's fucking crazy. He was a chef for 40 years. Of course he is. I mean, but- <laughs> I like that. It's a very no-waste approach. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I was a, I was a, I, I became a fussy eater. <laughs> I got like, bullied at school because of the way I ate mandarins. Yeah, I still I still do I'm not condoning bullying, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Still to this day, I'll, I'll eat a mandarin that way. I, I was steadfast on it. Damn, son. Yeah. He sticks he sticks to his uh Yeah. Sticks to his guns. I like it. Yeah. But that that um Mandarin thing is something I pick up on Manthania and yeah. on um Fino all the time. And same with that pink grapefruit. Yeah, thing. definitely. Um, um but yeah, so Oloroso. So getting back to Oloroso, um it's you so with without um the production of aldehyde or the um sort of the floor eating away at the glycerol, when you oxidatively age it, you actually get quite a dry, almost thick style of wine. So um, when it comes to Amontillado, you have a lot of sort of dry toasted nuts. Um, Almonds, walnuts. Yeah, almonds, walnuts, uh, pecans as well. Where Oloroso are going into like toasted macadamias, pine nuts, hazelnuts. Because you're getting more of that oil, it's coming across as – oilier nuts mm-hmm. um, and that's when you get into more of your sort of um, you get a bit more raisiny quality as yeah. well um, you get a bit more of those kind of burnt sugars as well yeah so sometimes I get like Madeira cake um, or like brown like you know maybe like a, a an orange cake that's been made with brown sugar mm-hmm. instead of white sugar um, where you get more of those molassesy tones but without that sweetness so Oloroso is beautifully bone dry but yeah, your main your main difference between those is because you have that glycerol, you have a different mouthfeel. It also sort of, smells sweeter because of that. It does smell sweeter, yeah. yeah. It can trick it can trick people sometimes when you when you sniff it and you expect so much sweetness. And it's dry. It is dry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Amontillado is perceivably drier, 
but they usually have the same sugar contents. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's that's Oloroso. And then now we're stepping into a different category of sherry, which is Pedro Jimenez. Oh, can I can I cycle back into Palo Cortado? Oh, yes, you sure can. <gasps> it's my one of my favorite styles it's as well. Everyone's favorite. Yeah. So Palo Cortado essentially is if Amontillado and Oloroso had a baby, um, and it's the wine that kind of sits beautifully in that uh, in that spectrum. Yeah, um, and that's because Palo Cortado was. It can go either. It can go one of two ways, um, but usually and historically, it was wine that was destined to be fino to be either maybe become a Montiato or keep being fino, um, and then it dropped its floor too quickly. So as I said, it has to be under floor for the two years. Yeah. If you drop that floor too quickly, it can't become Oloroso. It can't become fino or a Montiato. So it's this weird in between area. style, yeah, which like, is uh, I can't remember what Palo Cortado means. Um, oh my gosh, properly. No. Yeah, uh, yeah, I should know this, but I. But it, uh, from memory, it just means in between, or you know. Yeah, something like that. So yeah, it's a it's a style that um it on like honestly in tastings, like when you do the lineup, you go f- like Fino Amontillado, Palo Cortado, Oloroso, and yeah. then segue into Pedro Jimenez. <laughs> yes, which is an entirely different grape varietal from so all all well traditionally. Uh, all those other wines we talked about are made from Palomino. Yes. Pedro Jimenez is a grape varietal in its own right. Yeah, so it's a it's a grape variety in its in its own right. Um, and um, many people might not know that Palo Cortado, sorry, no. Pedro Jimenez. Many people might not, not know that Pedro Jimenez is actually a white grape variety. Same with Palomino. Yes, Palomino is a white grape variety yeah. as well. Um, and so... Um, Pedro Jimenez um, is not grown in the same areas as um, Palomino. It does need a bit more warmth um, because it's a grape with a, it needs a lot of sugar to become yeah. this style. So it's grown in Montilla. Yeah. Um, so it's essentially how we make Pedro Jimenez is also a completely different method. Um, so we pick the grapes, we then sun dry them under Saleo is the is the terminology for it. And they kind of raisin a little bit in the in the sun, and that loses some of its water content. It concentrates some of the sugars, and then we make our wine from there. Yeah, from there it can be barrel aged. You can have straight Pedro Jimenez. The best Pedro Jimenezes, I believe, are barrel aged and rested because you create complexities in those sugars and in those uh, character, like in those in those. Um, varieties um a bit like more structure as well yeah it's a bit more structure so um i've had pedro dating back to the 70s which has been super lovely um but you can just have like three-year-old pedro has been in barrel for the average of three years it's not uncommon that they're mixed with maybe a monteado or Oloroso to give them a bit more of a complex edge yeah. um but they are typically fortified to around 17 18 as well yeah. so they're a higher a higher ABV sherry, but that's more or less to combat a bit of the sugars as well. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I think we've spent so much time on sherry already. I, I warned you. I know. I warned you. I know you did. <laughs> and it's also a topic we're both passionate yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. I but think look, when you when you mention fortified wines, you have to. You have to spend time on sherry. You have to spend time on sherry. Yeah. Let's dive into some port. 
Yes. Because port is the, the probably the second most common, if not more, even same. Yeah, I, I would say it's the definitely in Australia, um, port is hugely popular. Yeah. Um, so I guess we'll I guess we'll start off with port as we historically know it now, and that is fortified wine from Portugal. Yeah. Should we taste one while we while we do it? Yeah, I brought in uh, a little twenty year old tawny port. Yes, you did. Um, from uh, Quinta do Valado. Yeah. Um, so essentially, it's a just a tawny port that's been aged for minimum of twenty years. Um, it's a cracking, cracking little port. This one, I love it. Basically, uh, we we know port to be um, a few things. Um, so. Uh, we in Australia produced port for a little bit, um, and then we are no longer allowed. We are to no, call it. we are no longer allowed to call it that. Yeah. Um, and that's getting into tewa again. Yeah. So, um, port um, comes from the word op- oporto. Um, so that is um, the region and where the region where the barrels and the aging happens. Yeah. Um, so. When, when we talk about port, uh, the grapes are not grown in Porto. Um, they're grown along the River Duro. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we do with port is it's quite a unique process. So essentially um, port starts off being super high sugar yeah. and then we fortify it. Um, so what we do is we pick the grapes. So we work. they work with a bunch of uh, native grapes uh, well, they're, they're planted around the 13th century. They're essentially native kind of at this point. Yeah. Um, and they pick those and then what we need to do is port only has a fermentation of about 48 to 72 hours. Yeah. Um, so what we need to do is we need to extract sugar, acid and tannins really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, so the traditional method is basically think of like a can-can line of people that are just foot stomping these grapes for like an extended period of time. So they're breaking down the seeds. Our seeds have a lot of tannins in them. We're breaking down colour from the uh, from the skins. As well as tannin from the as skins. As well as tannins, yeah. And then we're also getting acid and sugar as well. So essentially at the end of this like foot treading process um, that are in these like little stone baths, the walls are only about two feet tall. And you essentially just have this like hot like – grape mush after everyone's sort of yeah. trotted through it. So historically that's how it's done. There's also mechanical ways of doing it now, which makes everything a lot easier. Um, but a lot of places still use this traditional foot trotting method. Um, so then, as I mentioned, uh, the wine only goes through for, um, fermentation for about 40, 48 to 72 hours because we're trying to maintain sugar. Yeah. So um, port when it's fermented, only gets to about 6 to 9%, I believe. And then to stop fermentation, we fortify it. Um, and my favourite fact is it's fortified with um, aguiente, which means burning water. Uh, yeah, fire water. Fire water. Aguardiente, yeah. Yeah, um, which some people know as a it can be made into a, a herbal liqueur, um, similar to kind of it's got a vermouthy like a no, it's more like a, a brandy pisco vibe, but with like well, vermouth, they make aguardiente in a lot of South American countries, especially yeah. the Portuguese made ones, in, um, obviously. It's, yeah, made in uh, Galicia as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Brazil, 
Yeah. Um, yeah, it's Columbia, it's, yeah, I think. It's yeah. a grape moonshine. It is. It, it, it's effectively grappa, yeah. rakia. Um, All those fun ones. Cipro from Greece. Yeah. <laughs> which we did talk about on another episode because uh, Vula, our producer, her father and herself used to make it as well. Oh, damn. Yeah. You got any? Yeah. We do. Oh, heck yeah. yeah. Got some right here. We'll taste it later. We'll do it later. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so it's fortified with um, aguariente um, and uh, port's quite uh, – it's, it's very unique compared to sherry, so even though we're fortifying it, uh, with port, 20% of the overall product on average is your spirit. Yeah. Uh, where port, it's only – sorry, with uh, sherry, it's only around 4%. Yeah. Um, so a lot of – so this um, uh, 20-year-old port here is 19.5%. Sometimes they can go up to 22, 23%. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, essentially we do that and then we go into the different styles of port. So all port kind of s- starts off in the same way, in the same production. Um, your inexpensive types are your ruby port, which is just inexpensive yeah. port made red. from red grapes, yeah. um, barrel-aged for a little bit um, and then bottled non-vintage, um, super tasty, um, just easygoing. You can cook with it. Yeah. It's a it's a nice inexpensive style of port. I've always loved the term ruby port because it explains exactly what it is. Yeah. Colour and flavour, ruby port. Yeah, it's ruby it's port. bang on. Yeah, it's, it's got that kind of like macerated strawberry and cherry. Yeah. And, you know, it's all of those good red fruit qualities. Um, and then you've also got white port, which yeah. is the same thing but made with um, – typically it's made with Malvasia fina, which is a white grape, um, but we don't see a lot of white grapes in the actual production of port itself. Only in white port, those grapes are usually typically made, um, usually reserved for the table wines of uh, Portugal. Yeah. Well, I've also got uh, basically a white style, well, port style wine, but it's a white port style. Mm. Uh, That is a 20-year-old from New South Wales in Australia. Here from Crooked River Wines that I picked up back in, I think, 2019. I think Remember everyone you? can hear our sooky little <laughs> podcast dog, Grayson. He's our mascot. Yeah, he's our mascot. He's just having a hard time. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> what a sweetheart. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry rem- about that. <laughs> um, I remember you, yeah, I remember ha- trying some of that with you um, a, a couple of months ago, back. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it's got this, like, lovely sort of, like, cocoa butter, like, core to it. Um, but it's, yeah, it's like, it's very it's very decadent. Yeah, it is. And, yeah. And that white port style is something that we don't see a lot of over here in Australia. No. Um, so, obviously, we'll talk about this in a, in a second. But, yeah, we, we started emulating port here. Um, and the reason, actually, for that is um, due to phylloxera, um, the... Uh, mighty little mite um, that essentially just decimates yeah. uh, vineyards. Um, so um, phylloxera, uh, to break it down, yeah, is a it's a it's a a mite bug um, that burrows into the roots of wines. It's similar to a termite, but purely yeah. for grapevines. But purely for grapevines. So um, the 18th and 19th century, we saw phylloxera wiping out the world um, 
And I won't blame at colonization that, for phylloxera, at that but it point did in time, come from the America. The wine was just Europe, though. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we did see some phylloxera specifically in Victoria. Yeah. Um, I believe South Australia has never seen phylloxera. Um, and that's why their viticultural, um, uh, the sterilization of their viticulture is quite rigid there because mm-hmm. they've never had phylloxera. Um, but that's when we started to see the production of um, sticky, wines, yeah, yeah, sticky fortified port style wines, which we now call a combination of things. There's it's mostly tawny in Australia, right? mostly tawny, yeah. yeah. So uh, T A W N I E, mm-hmm. as opposed to with a Y, yeah. it's where it's um, refers tawny to in port. Yeah, when it refers to import. And then you've got uh, in a similar. Uh, Style, we've got sherry style wines made here. We call a para, yes, a p e r a, yes. Um, yeah. so yeah, we were making sherry spe- specifically back in the like sort of 70s and 80s, and then, um, that is when a bit of history for you that's kind of when the do in Spain, um, created the concept of the sherry triangle. And they basically sherry could only come from sherry, yeah. sherry, the, sher- the sherry triangle. Um, or sherry country, so we started calling it a para. But there's heaps of Palomino being grown across. Uh, Beechworth has a bit, bunch of Palomino. Adelaide Hills, um, I believe there's some. Uh, there's a lot in Adelaide um, and around those wine area, yeah. wine region areas. Um, so there is some there here that we're making a para, a para wines with. Good. That's yeah. a good thing. Yeah. I'm excited about that. Yeah. Now, we talked about. Port style wines, yeah. sherry style wines. Um, Madeira. Madeira. One that I'm very excited by. And yes. I think we should taste the one that you brought along. Yeah, I bought a little Scooby snack for us. Let yeah. me just shot this <laughs> port that I have in my glass. Um, but I have a Madeira from uh, 1981. Yeah. So um, Madeira is, it, it's one of those wines that, um, you like the oldest wine you'll ever be able to have is, is a Madeira. Yeah. Um, it has such beautiful longevity to it um, and is made in a bunch bunch of styles. Um, the uh, favourite wine of George Washington was a Madeira. Um, but, yeah. You've also brought this incredible apparatus for it, which is a so, Coravin. Yeah, I have this on the Coravin um, just to preserve it. Um, this is not a plug for Coravin, um, but essentially it's a, um, a wine preservation tool that you can puncture a needle through the cork, use argon gas to push the wine out, and argon is heavier than oxygen. Yeah. And so it settles on the top of the wine, creates a bit of a protective layer. Um, but because you're pushing argon in as well, it kind of pushes some of the residual oxygen out. Um, so it's a way of keeping wine under cork. Um, for an extended period of time um, and just preserving it. There are also screw cap Coravin things you can get for, yeah. for screw cap wine. So that lets you, I, I, they usually can last under a month yeah. under screw cap Coravin. But yeah, if you're not a per, like if you're a person that really enjoys drinking expensive wine, but you don't want to open up a whole bottle and drink it in three to four days. Um, <laughs> sorry, for, con- for context, uh, Lockie is just fully chin scratching Grayson right now. Um, and he is living his life. Ever. Um, 
this it, this should be um, featuring Grayson as well in yeah. the in the credits. Um, he is now a big part of this episode. <laughs> um, but he is a big sook. He is. Um, so yeah, that's. Um, uh, if you want to drink some expensive wine and you want to drink it over a couple of months, uh, you can look into a car of it. They're not cheap, um, but sometimes that's the perks They're very of handy things, working yeah. in the wine industry. They're extremely handy. Yeah. Um, sometimes I, I have been known to get a bit carried away with how many wines I have under Coravin and then yeah. I have to do the old purge or because they don't last forever no, under Coravin. No, it at least gives you more than a couple of days, right? Exactly, yeah. And at least with Fortified, you have a little bit more time on it. You do, yeah. So that fortification helps with um, preserving them under oxygen. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, with a wine like this, um, it seems silly to open it because Madeira, you know, a, a whole 750ml bottle of Madeira, unless you've got quite a few friends around, is very hard to finish. Especially and, friends that enjoy drinking this style Exactly. Of wine, it which, can be a bit divisive. Yeah. Um, but We I, are lucky that we have those kind yeah, of friends, right? Exactly. Um, so Madeira is, uh, I guess I'll get straight into it. Uh, Madeira is an island off of Portugal. It's actually closer to Africa than it is Portugal, yeah. but it is a Portuguese um, colonized island. Uh, they started getting grapes in the 13th century, uh, started making wine there. And the story goes is um, they put wine from Madeira onto ships heading to the West Indies. Mm -hmm. And then when they got there, the ships got sent back. Um, and the the trek between Madeira and the West Indies is um, very hot. Um, yeah. And when the wine came back, it had cooked. Um, and they went, look, it's not the worst. Um, and then they began fortifying it um, and sort of working with this idea of cooking these wines. So there was a few more of these treks that they would do other stuff and they would kind of, I, I believe they would put on a, you know, a, a barrel, see how it went. Um, and they started kind of working out what was, what was best. But uh, essentially Madeira is cooked wine that has been fortified. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of their maturation now on Madeira is in Open roofed warehouses in yeah. open roof cellars, so, there's so you can bake in the sun. Basically, yeah. So there's two ways of making Madeira in the modern sense now. So you can have stainless steel vats that are heated. To, I, I think it's 31 degrees. Yeah. Um, and they stay in these steel vats, and they just kind of cook over time. And then you can also have um, these like either open roof or like sauna rooms where the barrels sit in. Um, the latter, um, method is slower, yeah. um, and is usually the method reserved for, uh, vintage Madeiras. Your cheaper Madeiras will go through this like cooking process cause it can speed it up yeah. a little bit. Um, so you've got a few different age statements for Madeira. So you can have three-year-old, five-year-old, 15-year-old, 25-year-old, maybe 10 and 20. I, I don't see them that often. Um, so don't quote me on those being specific yeah. um, age things, but I do definitely know 5, 10, 15, 25. Um, and they're typically made with with price in mind. Your three-year-old Madeiras are going to be cheaper than your five-year-old Madeiras um, and they can use all of the, the noble grapes um, from these um, 
from this island. Um, the most common is uh, Tinta Negra or Negra Mole, yeah. um, which is a, the only red grape on the island. They You don't typically make um, your vintage Madeiras with uh, with that grape, but you can use your other your other grapes as well. But, yeah, there's, there's, uh, I think there's almost close to 20 different grape varietals that are grown on the Madeira archipelago. Yeah, I believe so. Um, but there's there's considered to be uh, five five noble yeah. uh, grape varieties, which um, when you're going into aged Madeiras, those variety statements on the bottle are your indicators of your dryness levels. Yeah, because um, oh, well, I think once I've seen, a, what, Monteseco? Yeah, I've seen Monteseco. Uh, Boal. Yep. Bodeo. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the other two. So to go through, I'm going to go through from dry to sweet um, yeah. to keep it simple. So um, the the reason why these varieties are used for these specific styles is because those varieties suit those styles. Yeah. So Circeal makes dry Madeira. Circeal, that's the other one that I, I forgot. Yeah, yeah, so Circeal makes dry Madeira. Um, and the reason why it makes dry Madeira is because the best place that it grows is the coolest part of the island. Yeah. So... Um, the cooler you are, the longer it takes for the grape to um, uh, to mature and ripen. Yeah. So we don't have the sugar content there to make a sweet Madeira. Um, so Circeal is typically dry. So you then have uh, uh, Vadejo, which makes your medium dry style. Yeah. Um, you then move into Boal, which yeah. makes your what's called medium rich or medium sweet. Um, and then you have for your sweet style, you have Malvasia, yeah. um, also known as Malmsey for those in the UK as well. Um, and essentially when you see these grape statements, um, you know what you're, what you're expecting. So what we're drinking now is a uh, Vadejo um, and this is what's called a Frasquera. Yeah. Uh, Frasquera just means it's been in barrel for a minimum of 20 years. So you can have a colchieta as well, which colchieta just means harvest, um, but col- colchietas are minimum five years in uh, in barrel and then they can be bottled at any stage. They can rest in bottle as well. Um, so often you'll see with a lot of expensive vintage Madeiras, you'll see a barreling, barreling age um, uh, and a bottling age. So it'll have the, the overall age of the wine in barrel. So, for example, this one here is 1981 and then bottled in 2019. Yeah, exactly. Which is absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's another variety um, that's super rare called Bustardo. Um, so if you ever want to call someone a Bustardo. It's a grape. It's a grape. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we, I, I've seen, I've not tried them, unfortunately. Um, I have sold a bottle, though. <laughs> Um, of uh, Bustardo from 1901. Mm, yeah. Right. So they get they get pretty old. So the funny thing about these old wines, right, and uh, uh, my experience with the old, these old wines uh, is actually purely here in Australia where at Seppelsfield I was able mm. to taste a 2017 Tawny-style wine. Yeah. So Port-style wine, um, 100 years old. 1917 to 2017. Yeah. Put in cask in World War One, which is just an incredible thing to think about. Yeah, that's that's older than both sets of my grandparents. Yes, right. Like to put into to put into perspective, um, the the fact that we're even like tasting a wine comfortably from 1981, 
um, which it, it, it's an incredible, an incredible thing to think about. Um, and the fact that the asset's still there and it's, it's still very, very structured. It's still very structured. Um, but this wine will, like, if I hadn't have corrobined it, would have easily lived another 50 years. Yeah. Which is crazy to think. Absolutely crazy. I'll happily drink some more of that later. Um, <laughs> so we'll move on to, we've got a couple of quick styles to talk about and then um, we'll move on to a few other things. Mm. But Tokai, let's quickly talk about Tokai. So Tokai is um, it is another style of fortified wine made in Australia. Um, so it was originally uh, to emulate uh, the Tokai wines of Hungary. Mm-hmm. Um, so slightly different spelling. So T-O-K-A-J-I is the Hungarian Tokai. Yeah. Um, and that is to- Tokai from Hungary is simply just a sweet wine. Yeah, It's not fortified. Um, it is just a sweet wine that goes through its own processes um, we tried to emulate that here with the great varieties that we use. Which we called toke and now we call topake, right? Yes. Yeah. So because too many people were confusing toke and toke, mm-hmm. which obviously. Yeah. Um, so we fortified it um, here. But essentially it's um, very, it's very, like you can, you can call it very similar to a tawny in flavor, but they yeah. are made very differently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because what you're doing with tokes is you're picking the grapes for its sweetness yep. to create the base wine and then fortifying it from there yep. um, rather than trying to frantically extract More acid, sugar, acid. tannins from the wine. You're focusing on your sweetness there. Yeah. And there's that. that's where you're creating your flavour. Whereas, yeah, Tokai is, uh, again, it's probably what a sun-dried grape wine similar to PX. It's a botrytized wine. Is it? Yeah. So you get the combination of both there. So... Um, botrytis, uh, sorry, botry, botrytis, um, is, uh, people may have heard of the term noble rot. Or sauternes. Or sauternes. Um, so, uh, essentially it's this, uh, gray bacteria that grows on, um, sun-dried raisined grapes. Um, and it imparts an incredible flavor. Um. It also, it eats moisture. It does. And leaves sugar. Essentially, um, this can only be done with grapes that are super high acid, um, because like semion. Yeah, you need acid to balance out the sh- the sweetness. Yeah. Um. So yeah, you're using uh, ferment is the grape variety that's used in um, Hungarian Tokai, but yeah, yeah. it's a patriotized wine. Because yeah, uh, what's used in Sauternes? What's the grape variety? Semion. Semion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's, Sauternes um, is one of my favorite styles of wine. Yeah. That's that grown exists. in the South of Bordeaux. Yeah. yeah. So on the, um, on the left bank down. So that's the only, uh, it's one of the, f- so it's where, um, white wine is permitted to be grown in Bordeaux. It's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's also Masala, which is uh, from my understanding, very similar to Sherry, but produced purely in. Italy, right? Yeah. Um, so I was actually reading up on it a couple of days ago. Um, it was essentially ma- Masala was created in the 17th, like 1770s because an Englishman kind of went, hey, yo, have you heard of like sh- sherry and port and shit? Like that, that's popping off. You should, <laughs> you should do some of this. And they did and that's how Masala was created. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, it's it's word for word as well. Yeah. I'm not. It's not verbatim. It's yeah. it's it's proper. It's that's fucking what the, popping off. It's, it's, it's popping off. <laughs> um, but it was it, once again. It's the English, or oh, well, the European colonization going. We we want some of this over here. The only way that we know how to have this here is by fortifying it. Yeah. Um, and the English are massive sweet tooths. Um, they just love their wine. I mean, back then, I'm not sure. I'm not, like. I don't know much Not about so UK much statistics yeah. now, but um, they loved sweet wines. Yeah. And I think there was that correlation with sweet and fortification is what made it be able to be consumable yeah. in the UK and its various colonies. Yeah. Um, so that's where Marsala was born. Because um, it's, it's made in Sicily, right? Yeah, it's made in Sicily. Um, so uh, using, uh, I believe there is uh, white and red styles of masala. Yeah. Um, so you've got uh, Rubino, which is just kind of a ruby style, and then you've got Bianco. Yeah. Um, it's an area I don't know much much about, but I have drunk a fair amount of masala in my life. It's also a bit more savoury. Like it is sweet, but it's still got that savoury edge to it, similar to Manzanilla where yeah. it is that more coastal, yeah, definitely. salty, savoury yeah, it's got this um, element to it. I, I always find that it's got like a, a very like a naturally herbal quality yeah. to it, which – is classic of wines in Sicily anyway. And also um, classic of just Italian produce really. Yeah, exactly. Is, yeah. Yeah, savoury the better. Yeah. The uh, the base of Amari is from Italy, you know, the origin of yeah. that and that savoury herbal element is so so quintessential yeah. to alcohol produced exactly. in Italy. Which now is, the question begs, do we classify vermouth as a fortified wine? We do, yes. We do? Yeah. Yes. I know you and I love vermouth. Yeah. And vermouth being a a fortified wine that's it's an ar- aromatized fortified wine. Yeah, yeah. So it is it, it's its own category, but it does fall in the in the realm. And so it has adjuncts, and so they add, uh, like you said, it's an aromatized wine. Mm. Being it has things like herbs, spices, sweetness added to it yeah. to create something. Yeah. Um, Used a lot in cocktails, obviously, but yeah, huge. Oh, I mean, that's the the backbone of the. Vermouth trade. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I'm such a sucker for uh, for vermouth in general. Um, but yeah, vermouth is you make your base wine. Um, yeah. You then so I, I know when um, there's a beautiful company here in Australia, Maiden Eye, which is transferred globally. Yeah. Um, and very well known globally. Um, what they do is all of their botanicals tend to be steeped into their uh, their neutral spirit. Yeah. Um, and that's how they impart flavor in there. But Essentially, it is uh, a base level wine that is fortified, uh, has a sh- added sugar, um, and then according to EU law, it must have um, part of the. Uh, well, they use wormwood. Yeah, most it's, for the most part, wormwood the, and gentian. I think are the yeah, two most common. Um, so they're part of a specific strain yeah. uh, or specific group uh, group of um, of herbs. Um, wormwood also being known as absinthe. Yeah. What goes into absinthe, but, you know, as not a higher strength as some uh, some absinthe and also the, the concept of yeah. absinthe being a hallucinogen. Yeah, you have to drink a lot of absinthe to, yeah. be, to be feeling that. So I'm feeling sick far before then. Yeah, right? 
We did mention something that we tasted earlier on, which is Pinot de Chirons, yeah, which is I'm, a Mistel. I'm going to let you take the floor on this yeah. um, because I actually don't know much about it. So, so every Mistel, day is a school day, for, even for me. Yeah, right. <laughs> and Mistel is something I'm super excited by, which is a basically a fortified fruit juice made in wine regions in France or, well, wine or brandy regions in France. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, because it can be made in cognac. Right? This Pinot de Chirance is the Mistel that comes out of cognac. Ooh, so delicious. it's made from the cognac grape juice fortified with the white spirit from cognac and then matured in cask together, that, which is that's, absolutely incredible. That all sounds tasty. And it, it was. I, I, mean, can, it was I can attest. But you've got Mistels from other parts of, of France. Um, one of the most famous is Pomo, which is from the Calvados region of France. But these these mistels are incredible. So it's kind of like if you mixed white port, macadamia liqueur, and chartreuse. Yeah, was kind of my brain went went that spectrum, and I was like, there's just so much like it's like this back herbal quality to it, but like there's like a macadamia quality. Oh, I was uh, mm, tasty, delicious. I love mistels. Mistels yeah. are incredible. Yeah. I know I say incredible a lot, but I love it. Um, Would you say you might turn it into a drinking game? I think you have. <laughs> I'm not confirming nor denying. <laughs> I think we've talked enough about how we would drink these wines. Yes. And how they are relevant to the rest of the industry. Is there any particular brand you think people should look out for? Oh, there, there is – that's such a weighted question because there's just so many. Um, my – my, um, I, I guess my, my pick would actually not to be look for a brand specifically but look for venues or places that have a really great list of these and a nice concise list where you can talk to someone about knowing where to start. Yeah. Um, because I can, I could easily rattle off at least six or seven producers now that for me would be start here, but um, we don't always have access to those things here. Um, not everywhere sells them. They can be expensive. You don't know where to start. I reckon let's finish up our episode. Yeah. But I've got my standard four questions I ask everyone. Oh, four questions. Are you ready for them? Let's go. I want just short, sharp answers. Okay. That's going to be very hard for me. I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What was the first drink you ever had? Victoria Bitter. It would have been my dad had it open and I would have definitely had a sip of it under the age of somewhere between zero and 18. Yeah. I won't specify, um, but it was definitely... Definitely VB, yeah, without a doubt. What was the last drink you had that you really enjoyed? Um, I, oh, good question. I'm actually a massive fan of um, uh, a wine from Galicia called uh, the producer is Gimero, uh, and one of their single vineyards, which is the Finca Maximum Menthea. Um, and I opened a bottle of that uh, a couple of weeks ago. And that's probably one Obviously of my favourite wines. Obviously under Coravin as well. No, I, I, I fully opened it. <laughs> it got demolished. What do you normally drink when you finish work? 
Uh, it can be a number of things, uh, also known as what's in my fridge. Yeah. <laughs> which actually tends to be sherry. It yeah. tends to be like a pheno of some sort. Um, or if I'm out, um, I either – so uh, if I've been at a tasting, it'll either be a beer or a G&T. Mm-hmm. Um, or if I'm out, it's a Negroni. Fantastic. Yeah. Now, the final question. Yeah. Often called the bartender's handshake, Fernet Brunker. Do you actually enjoy it or you just tell people you do? I used to enjoy it uh, and then I overdid it. Uh, like a lot of people with tequila or? Yeah, it, it was it was my tequila. Yeah. Um, I was, I probably had it for the first time like five years ago and I, sh- I had a shot of it at Heartbreaker um, and I was like, this is whack but I kind of like it. Yeah. And then... Anytime I would do a shift in a bar or whatever, it would just be Fernet Branca, Fernet Branca. And what actually ruined it for me was Hard Starts, which is half Fernet Branca, half Fernet Branca Manta, yeah. Yeah. Um, and from there, it's just now got a bit of a sour taste in my mouth. However, I do still like it as an ingredient. Yeah. So if a, a cocktail has Fernet Branca in it, I will go, that's, it's probably going to be tasty but I can't drink it straight. <laughs> Ferno Brunker and Coke. I, I have, I've not come around to it yet, but only because I'm not a big soft drink person. Um, and I'm, I only ever have Coke when I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fair enough. Well, Maybe that, hair of the dog yeah, next right. time. It's just Fernet, Fernet yeah. and Coke Fernet with a bit of KFC. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, on that note, I want to thank you for joining me. No, thank you for having me. It's always such a pleasure to sit here and talk about wine with you. And <laughs> always you talk so to you. Thank you so much, Lucky. <laughs> and we'll drink some whiskey after this. I hope everyone enjoyed this episode. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So, All right. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Spirited Discussions. I hope you had as much fun as I have and have been able to take away something you didn't know. Don't forget to like, subscribe and share with your friends and please join me next time on Spirited Discussions.